Gunner looked like he was wringing out wet socks. I'm just going to say. <laughs> I loved it, buddy. <laughs> oh, that was so awesome. What a great, great, what a great heritage God has given us. Uh, you're going to actually have two messages this morning, so sit back and relax. Um, if you would, uh, mine's going to be on uh, from the book of James, uh, chapter 2, and spend a few minutes there, and then I'll turn it over to Josh Cruz. Thank you. <laughs> but I've been thinking, I, I recently got a letter from my, uh, my mother's sister, and it gave me a, a list of family members uh, that have since passed now, of course, and where they're buried and that sort of thing. And, and in the process, there was, a, there was a name that was mentioned that's in the Cross Creek area that may be a distant cousin, and we trace ourselves back to the same great-grandfather. And so I, I, I've been, I was thinking about that, and, and of course homecoming is all about, in part anyway, looking at the past and thinking about what has happened and, and what's gone on. And, and, and you know, Java's 125 years old today, and we're celebrating today, and that's, that's quite a testimony to God's grace. But as I began to think about it, I, I realized here from James how that works out and, and why we have reasons to be grateful. Because what's, what's taken place is, is that 125 years ago, somebody believed God and acted. And, and in that action, God blessed it and has multiplied it over the years. And I, we have a little history out there on the foyer that uh, has been put together in days uh, past, and you can kind of read a little bit about the church and that sort of thing. Um, but as you think about it, uh, somebody was obedient to a call that God had put on them, and they and they faithfully executed that to the best of their ability down through the generations. It's gotten where we are today, and so we have reasons to be just exceedingly joyful and grateful. You know, I, I go out in the go cut great graveyard sometimes when we go out there and we read the names and there's a, there's 24 folks that have been that are out there during my time there um, and when you think about that these people had an impact in their generation they, they, they made a difference and so I thought about that and I thought about the fact that what will they be saying about us 125 years from now if the Lord tarries and this church is has that opportunity what will they be saying about our generation? What will they be speaking of? And, and, I, and from James, it's a familiar passage in chapter 2, picking up in verse 14. It says this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he is faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And we would spend hours debating about works over faith and Paul over James and these kind of things, but that's really not the issue. The issue is, is that if I say that I believe God's going to do something, how do I respond to that? How do I act accordingly? There's a name out there, George Fletcher. Don't know the man, don't know anything about him other than what's on that piece of paper, but he was the first pastor of Joppa. So I'm, I'm going to make some assumptions here because I had the privilege and honor to, to start and be involved in five church plants, three of which are very successful. One is the, with the unique situation where it, it, it drew some people out of something and brought them into the kingdom, and then the, the fourth one, the other one has went, changed, kind of changed direction a little bit and went in a different way. But nonetheless, when you're involved in those kind of things, it really brings to home uh, what you're doing today is going to make a huge impact down the line. It's, it could be all the difference in somebody's life. 
And so Mr. Fletcher and whoever else was with him there decided, were led of God to start a church. And, and it, it, they originally came from the Trenton area. It came over to here. You know, at one time Trenton was actually called Joppa, and that's where the name originally comes from, which I find very interesting. Um, so we see that they came here and they did that. And this passage tells us if they have faith but they do not work, what profit is it? When they saw this area, this community, I'm, I'm going to imagine that those folks realized the tremendous need for the gospel. If you look at verse 15 and verse 16, it says this, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and well filled, but you do not give them the things which they are needful for the body, what does it profit? And so we see in this passage here, it's certainly talking about brothers and sisters. If I see you with need and I don't do anything, we just had a discussion amongst our men about helping someone. This very idea, we see a need, we're going to go try to minister to that need. There's no greater need than the gospel. There's no greater need for this community that God was ordaining than that somebody to come and preach the gospel, bring the clothing of righteousness through the gospel and the food of the bread of life to that community. Because what you have to do is you have to see people as they really are. What we do is we look at people a lot of ways. We look at them as they line up the way I line up, my political religion, my community, my this, my that, or those things are really ultimately there. What you have to do is see people for they are. Are they wrapped in the righteous clothing of Jesus Christ? That's the first thing. Have their old rags of the old life been replaced by the new righteous garments of Christ? And if they have been, are they eating from the bread of life? Are they drinking clean water and eating good grain? And if that, none of those two are going on, then the greatest thing I can do in their lives is bring the gospel to them. And, when, and we have been commanded, according to Matthew 28, and any verse you want to pull out, and we can plainly see that we have been commanded to preach the gospel, to bring the gospel to the world, to make disciples, to minister the good news of Jesus Christ. And I thank God, 125 years ago, some fellows and some women were led of God to do that very thing in this place. That's a glorious truth that we need to rejoice in. They saw the need. And we know in our generation, in our time, there's a tremendous need here. We've had many come through. We see the need for the gospel. We can debate all we want about our country and the shape it's in and all the other things we were having that discussion earlier too. The need is the gospel. I don't, I don't need the national debt reduced. I need the gospel. I don't need a cyber protection system. I need the gospel. I don't need cheap food and cheap fuel. I need the gospel. They need the gospel. The world needs the gospel. And we have been commanded to practice that. And if we say we believe that, and all of you right now are all shaking your head going, Amen, Amen. <laughs> Little hooks that hits that. We're, we're commanded to do this. But look at verse 16, and here's the struggle. And you know what? 125 years ago, that generation did not do this. Look what it says. And one of the, it says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and, and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needful for the body. What does it profit? See, they didn't do that. They didn't go, well, you guys over there in that area, we're over here in Trenton area, we've got our church, we're all set up, everything's good, we got the gospel, I'm saved, my family's saved, I don't need to do nothing else, worry about nothing else. Them folks over there close to the river, to heck with that, they'll, you'll get, get by on your own. We got a church right here, it's only eight miles away, what's the problem? They didn't do that. 
brought the clothing and the food over here. They brought it here, and it began to be established. They moved on this location in 1915, I think is what it said. The name changed a couple times after that, went to Swan, First Baptist of Swanee at one point, then changed back to Joppa. But the fact of the matter is those folks practiced their faith. They lived out their faith. They took the command of God seriously, what he had put on their hearts to do, and they did it. And I can tell you, sometimes you think you're crazy in the middle of that. Like I said, we started a church over there at Bronson, me and Brother Andy, and I'll tell you what, there was a whole bunch of people told us, y'all are crazy. First of all, there's no need for a church way down in them woods. There ain't nothing down there between Bronson and Newberry. <laughs> Tear yourself down there on some of them pig trails, you'll find out. I imagine these folks were probably told, "Don't you don't need to go over there. There's nothing over there but farmland that folks hang around with. They didn't listen to that. They didn't listen to when people just told them, you're wrong, you can't do it that way. I heard that more than one time. Can't do it that way. That'll never fly. That'll never work. You're right. If it's based on Robin, it won't ever work. It was based on George Fletcher, his first pastor. It had never worked. But what they believed in their heart, they, in, in the truth and the faith of Jesus Christ, they practiced out in real time. They went there and they said, we're going to start this church. We're going to start this gospel in this location in front of these people. And we're going to see what God does. And they were faithful to that end. And I bet if we could talk to some of these folks, and one day we'll get the chance to ask them, you think they had any hardships, any tough times, any struggles through them 125 years? Let me see. There was only, what, uh, 1896. That would have been two world wars, uh, the Roaring Twenties, Prohibition, mobs, the Great Depression, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War, Civil Rights Movement, the 70s. <laughs> the 80s, the greed decade, Bill Clinton. Two or three oil crises and shortages, untold numerous other wars, good economy, bad economy, good crops, bad crops, good days, bad days, loved ones getting married, getting buried, having babies all in between. And yet they persevered on, kept on going. Some days it would be a few people here, some days it would be a bunch. At one point there was 135 enrolled in Sunday school. The very next line says, but a bunch of them didn't come back next week. Go out and look at it. Very next line says it. See, they didn't do that. You know why? Because verse 17 says this. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, faith, I'm not talking about a work salvation. You guys have heard this before. I'm not talking about a work salvation. I'm talking about a salvation that works. Let's be perfectly honest. Don't tell me you're a believer, but don't do the things that believers do. I'm not debating struggles. I'm not debating heartaches. I'm not debating you get caught in a sin. You have to deal with it with the Lord. Right? You can all say amen. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about persevering on, doing what I've been called to do, being led of God to do a work and staying in that work that he called me to stay in. We celebrated. We lost some loved ones last year. You heard Miss Diane's testimony. Example, Kelton, Miss Marilou. These are the fresh ones. But we could go back, couldn't we? who were faithful to what they had been called to do and stayed with that task until God take, took them home. Because their faith was not dead. Their faith was alive. 
Why? Because their faith was in a living God. It was not in a God who was dead. It was the God of Abraham and God of Isaac and Jacob, the God of the living. And so they lived it out. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so grateful for every generation, for every pastor. There's a bunch of them on there. And, you know, just being the human man that I am, I did the math, and none of them have been more Silent told me I must be doing something right. God is great. God is great. But someone says, will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, everybody on that list of names on there, I can go and say, them fellas had faith. Those women that supported them had faith. Those who attended had faith. They believed. Oh, there was a comment in there at one point, somebody donated the paint. Somebody who taught Sunday school, faith. Somebody brought a loved one, faith. Baptism, faith. On and on it goes. Faith being worked out, being lived out. That's what we saw. That's what we are experiencing here today. The works of those folks by faith in Jesus Christ. We, right now, today, are enjoying the blessing and the fruit of that. We are experiencing right now. singing and ringing those bells that all makes us laugh and make us enjoy it all heart. Guys, are there any adults that ring bells? I know there's some. More time in VBS. How many of you went to VBS as a child and learned the gospel and learned truth and heard things about God? See, that's seed playing deeply in their lives. That's putting gospel seed, sowing it into their lives and waiting on God to bring the fruit. That's faith. That's what we have. And I rejoice in what these folks have done. We are here today because their faith was not dead. They lived out what they said they believed. And the only real question I have, and this is one I've been asking myself over the last few days as I thought about this and pondered it, what are they going to say about because sometime at some point, sure, my name will be on that list with a lot of other guys. What are they going to say about Robin? He was, he was here. He did this. He did what? Are they going to have a testimony? Are they going to be able to give God praise because of my actions in this field at that time? That I rightly watered, that I rightly tended to the soil, that I rightly added fertilizer, that I rightly gave the word of God, that I rightly worked with the way you're supposed to be so that the days gone by when I'm laying out here with other folks, they go... Turn over, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I will wrap up. I promised myself that I would not go long. I only had this many notes. Pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The question before us, Joppa, is how are we going to sow? 
We're fixing to do BBS. It's a fun time, great time, best time in the world. we got a class for everybody, anytime, anyplace, anyhow. You can work, you can serve, you can enjoy, you can learn, you can grow. The real issue is for those of you who are going to be involved in it, how will you sow? The Bible just told us if you sow sparingly, you can reap sparingly. Those of you who farm, who've got gardens, you put one seed of corn in, you're not going to get a lot of corn. I mean, that just makes sense to me. You put a whole row of corn, I'm looking for a whole row of corn to come up. Well, if we sow sparingly in the lives of people this good news, we can expect little result. And I've learned this about fields. They're hard work. I, I, you know what? The thing about a field, it's always in the sun. They're never under a shade tree. They're never in the building, except if your hydroponics got super-duper lights and all that stuff. But, you know, they're basically out there where it's hot, out there where it's dry, out there where the work's at. And I want you to know, folks, that the lives of people sowing the gospel into people, it can be the hardest, hottest work you'll ever be involved in. There's some hard ground out there. Sometimes you've got to run a bottom plow through it three or four times before every breaks over. And then you can start to disc it. And then you can get it ready with rows. Then you get to throw some gospel seed in there. Why do I say all that? Because you're all working with somebody that seems like a, a rock. Just keep working it. Just keep working it. God was faithful to those folks in that day. He'll be faithful to us in our day. It says, it says those who reap uh, so bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let everyone give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Usually this verse is almost always associated with tithing, and I'm not going to argue the point. You should tithe. But that's not the real issue here. It's what he's really saying to us is this. You're only going to do what you've purposed in your heart to do. You're only going to spend as much time with somebody as you've already purposed in your heart to spend with that person. As a matter of fact, you better go ahead and say, decide now how much time you're going to put in that person because that's all you're going to do. Have you ever said that's enough? tells us here we don't do that out of legalism I'm not doing it because I got to oh the preacher said I got to be a disciple spoke to them, they were like, Ugh. nobody likes that. They had to do what they were talking about. It made it interesting. It made it exciting. And they actually liked you. It's because they were cheerful. You and I, who have been saved and have the grace of Jesus Christ dwelling in our hearts, we can be cheerful in this thing. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Imagine that. Whatever you get involved in, whoever it is, whatever it is, the person you're ministering to, God is going to give you sufficient grace for that person. Think about that. God's going to give you sufficient grace for that person so that you can minister the truth to them. 
For 125 years, that's what's been going on here in this church. And I rejoice in that. Praise God for that. And you move down to verse 10. He, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So how he's, here he's asking for the, God to bring that about. And he says, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. You see that? Those folks 125 years ago when they started this church were probably not thinking 125 years from now there's going to be a guy in a building that's going to have all the high-tech equipment, sound equipment, air conditioning, soft chairs, and this big giant metal building on property. They probably weren't thinking that. They were just thinking, I'm going to work this field today. And somebody somewhere down the line is going to praise God because of it. Think about the person who preached the gospel to you. First real example I had of the gospel is my dad. He's here today, and I praise God for that. And he preached it in a way that made me pay attention. You know what he didn't say? You dirty sinner son, get right. He already knew that. But he just started living a gospel life. There was a dramatic change in my dad's life one day. And I got to see it firsthand. And he started testifying to what God had done for him. And he stayed on that. And it made all the difference in my life. And I praise God for that. You praise God for the person who spoke your life. That's what we're talking about today. 125 years ago, people committed to the gospel and their lives were changed. Give thanks. Give thanks. We're wrapping this up, which is reaching everything, liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God for the administration of this service, not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgiving to God. Guess what? And the ladies can testify of this one. Them ladies that do the cooking and all the people who are involved in it, it's like 50 meals get made every week now. And they can tell, and I, I, I'm not speaking for them, but I've put money on it, that they will tell you that they are the ones who are getting the blessing. After all the work and all the, everything else that they do, they're the ones. Somebody like Mr. Cecil makes a profession of faith and becomes saved. That's what we're talking about today. God has supplied this church for 125 years with everything that was necessary for life and godliness, every sufficiency. Maybe in the flesh we didn't see it or didn't think or didn't know, but God was. And here we sit today giving God praise for those folks who were obedient to the gospel. And I rejoice in that. And my purpose and my heart and my desire for you and I is that if he tarries 125 years from now, they will be saying about this generation, we give thanks for them because God was glorified. If you get a chance, take a moment and thank the Lord for what he's done here at Chapel Hill Baptist Church. And I'm going to close now and let Brother Josh wrap us up. So. speak today, and I knew he had been here in a couple of weeks, I thought, well, I better be quick, because I'll be holding them up against lunch, and it will be past 12 o'clock. <laughs> um, there's a text that I have in mind uh, that I do promise I won't be long with you. It's Matthew 28. Uh, Pastor Robert just mentioned the command to make disciples in Matthew 28. 
um, which in my studies this week, I saw something that I had not seen before. And the command to make disciples is in response to a problem that Jesus saw on the mountaintop. Now, the mountaintop is where everything is supposed to be good and peaceful and joyful. The mountaintop is where there should be no problems, no issues, no crying, no pain. God describes heaven as his own mountaintop on the most high, seated on the highest height, is the Lord God who looks down upon the earth as his footstool. But Jesus is on the mountaintop. This is after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. Jesus is on the mountaintop. And looking in verse uh, 16 of Matthew 28, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, they are on the mountaintop with not just the crucified Savior, but the resurrected Lord. He is standing before him with with nail holes in his hands and a spear imprint in his side. How could some doubt the Lord Jesus in that moment right then? It would be so easy to look at these disciples and scoff and say, I would never do that. I would never scoff and and doubt Jesus on the mountaintop when he's showing me his nail-scarred hands, the blood that he shed just for me on the cross. I would never doubt, but some did. And this is easily testable if you just simply look in your own heart when I ask, have you ever doubted God? We have. We have. Pastor Robin said 125 years ago, they started this church, what will things be 125 years from now? We will never know if we don't do this command right here. If we do not do this, there will be no one to remember us. This building may be here, but they might turn it into American Legion Hall. I don't want that to happen, but if we don't do this text, it will. They'll turn this place into something else. And long after all of us are gone, what will the memory be? It lives on in disciples. Some doubt it. So Jesus sees this doubt. He sees this issue. And look what the doubt does. It stops worship. It stops them from worshiping God. The very thing we were created to do, the thing that was disrupted in the garden, the thing that was destroyed by sin, that Jesus has now come to put back together. The issue is still here. And what does the Son of God, the resurrected Savior, and God Almighty Himself say is the antidote to this venom of doubt? Verse 18, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He is bringing all authority of God in heaven on the Most High to solve this issue of doubt. And what is the authority going to do? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Cultural, no, no cultural hindrances, no racial lines, no ethnic boundaries of all nations. Go make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. This is the issue, and this is the reason we are here, is because people don't worship. They doubt. That doubt leads itself all the way to atheism. I don't believe in any God. The fix to doubt, the problem of a lack of worship, is in making disciples. In James chapter 1, verse 6, uh, verse six, 
the Bible says, let him ask who is asking in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from God. He is a double-minded person, unstable in all their ways. This is the one who doubts God. And this is why you cannot worship when you doubt God. How many Sundays have you been here or been at another church when doubt is filling your heart and you're struggling and you're trying to keep your head above water and you're trying to worship God, but it's so difficult because the doubt has tossed you. The doubt has left you sinking. The same way Peter, the only other human being to walk on water besides the Lord Jesus when he was in a human body, Peter is walking on water, but he takes his eyes off Christ. He looks at the waves on either side of him and begins to doubt God, and that's when he sinks doubt will sink your worship. Doubt will stop you from doing the thing God created you to do. You have a purpose. And sin disrupted that purpose and took it away from you and replaced with doubt. Remember what the serpent asked Eve. He didn't say, oh no, just eat the fruit. You'll be fine. Trust me. When she said, God said not to eat of this tree. He said, did God really say? He came with, he came with doubt. And the devil is still whispering doubt in your ear. Are you really saved? Wouldn't you be more mature if you were saved? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you have less sin if you were really saved? I mean, me personally, the thing the devil whispers in my ear is, you, you'd be smarter than you are. You'd remember those Bible verses if you were a real Christian. Because I do, I struggle with memorizing the verses. I, I can remember where it is in the kind of the text, but man, sometimes. My, my daughter Anna Snow has way more memorized than I do. <laughs> and she must get that from her mother, because <laughs> she didn't get it from me. And I feel the devil, I feel Satan telling me that sometimes. If you were a really a real Christian, you would remember those verses. Satan comes with doubt. But what does Jesus come with? Discipleship. And it is in making disciples that we remove doubt and instill worship in them. And you might be asking, well, how do I do that? How do I make disciples? Well, John 13, 34 and 35 say this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. If you are to love one another by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This is how you make disciples. Just love people. Love others. The world is so devoid of this love. I mean, it is the Sahara Desert out there of love. And I know this because across the street, when these kids come on Wednesday night, can I, without naming names, can I just mention three disciples I'm currently working with right now, and they're relatively new. One of them is excited right now about his new stepdad because he doesn't beat him. When I asked him, oh, you like your stepdad? Oh, yeah, he doesn't hit me. It's great. And he's being sincere. I have another disciple that he can't go on the Keys mission trip because he has a summer job, and the one week he's allowed to take off, his mother is coming into the state to visit him. That's the week he needs. I have another disciple that when I picked him up, he was crying. And I said, buddy, what's, what's going on? And that's when I noticed the laceration on the back of his head where he, one of his family members had beaten him up. He did not need a Greek word. He did not need some kind of fancy education that I have. That boy did not need me to go, oh, let me tell you how you can fix this. What they needed was love. That's what he needed. And that's why they keep coming back. That's why they keep coming back. That's why you're here. Because God has loved you, put a love in your heart that you can love each other with. 
And that's why we're here today. That's why we've been here for 125 years. That's why I believe Joppa will be here for the next 125 years. And they won't remember our names. There really will be a list somewhere. But you know what they will remember is the love that we have for each other. Making disciples is simply loving people. If you love somebody, that person will become your disciple. You watch. In fact, it's amazing. We have all these programs about how to make disciples, all the ways you can go out and find some. Trust me, just love somebody who needs it. They will come to you. They will flock to where you are. This person loved me. This person showed me the love of God. And with them, now I find my disciple. This is the fix for the problem of doubt. And there's one last text I'd like to share. If you'd like to turn there, it's Matthew 22. Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees. They know that he is bringing new covenants to the Jewish people. He is bringing the new method of salvation, no longer offering physical sacrifices, but offering a once-and-done spiritual sacrifice. And so in Matthew 22, verse 34, they challenge him by saying this, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him and said to him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said unto him, You shall love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is worship. Loving God is worship. No matter what you might do in your physical body, if your heart does not love God, then you cannot worship. I mentioned this in Sunday school, that I can look like I'm worshiping from my mind to my mouth, but if my heart's not involved, it's not worship. You love the Lord your God. Jesus is echoing Deuteronomy 6. But then he goes on to say, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all, the law and the prophets. Joppa Baptist Church, you know that I love you, but I'd like to challenge you as I have been challenged studying this text. If what we're doing doesn't match up with one of these two things, we must ask, why are we doing it? And I asked myself a harsh question this week, and I looked at my own church, and I asked myself, what are we doing, and why are we doing it? And do you know what I found to the joy of my soul? Is that you people are doing these two things. Pastor Robin mentioned that Friday food ministry. That food is delicious, but do you know what's even better? The discipleship. This service right now and all the fun that we've had, it's wonderful. But you know what's better is the love and worship. We are doing it. We are doing it. But church, we could do better. And what I mean by that is this. When there are things that try to creep in and disrupt our worship, when things try to come in and and cause doubt in us, remember these two things. If you are purposing to love your neighbor and love God, then you are not doing well. These things are not easy. In fact, I I would guess, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I would guess that we spend more time doubting than we do worshiping. The world is in such a state. I have heard more people tell me that Jesus was about to return during the COVID-19 pandemic than ever before. And uh, I'm not sure. Maybe he is. It'd be be really great. (laughs) But I know this. Until he returns, you and I have a commandment. And it has been my privilege to be at 
this church, serving with you. I, in a sense, I was enjoying a spiritual homecoming today. Because the joy of my soul, I was so afraid that I was going to look inside my own heart, my own ministry, and my own church and find out that we were not doing one of these two things. But by the gracious mercy of God, I looked deep within myself, I looked within our ministries, and I found people who love God and want to love each other. There's going to be no judgment on how well we do. We're all trying to do our best. But this is the standard. And this has to remain the standard. And this is what you must do, and I must do, for there to be another 155 years of this church, is to love God first and love others second. Upon this depends all. The law all the prophets, all the church services, all the worship, all the Sunday school classes, all the meals, all the homecomings, everything is worship and making disciples. Love God, love others. Joppa Baptist Church, I love you. And I know that you love me because you put up with me. <laughs> That's real love right there. You and my wife, I don't know how y'all do it. <laughs> but I'm so thankful to my God who has instilled these things in us. Let us never forget the answer to doubt is worship. The fix to doubt is loving each other. And the response to those with us on the mountain who are doubting is not to cast them off for not being good enough, not to throw them out for not being right enough, but to grab arms and say, worship with me, love with me, and God will see us through. Jaffa Baptist Church, enjoy your homecoming today because God has provided it for you. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you once again, Lord, that the perfection we seek is not found within our grasp. For Lord, I would destroy it if able. If it was up to me to lead these people to heaven, Lord, we would all surely fail. Lord, I'm so thankful that your son not only brought the truth that we needed, Lord, but brought the way to do it. Lord, I don't have to do anything else for making a disciple but loving somebody. That's because you love me. Lord, and in that love, we find the perfect harmony of being in the family of God. So, Lord, I thank you. I ask you to bless this church, bless these people. Lord, I know we have visitors today, some traveling, Lord. Bless them as they return to their own churches. But, Lord, challenge us. Fix our hearts if they be wrong. If I'm doing something other than loving you and loving my neighbor, I am in error. And I need to change. But this change is not bad. Lord, this change is good. So I ask, Lord, a special prayer now. If there be someone in here, even on homecoming, Lord, who doesn't love you, that doesn't love their neighbor, that this be the day they return to you. Lord, Romans 10 says, if they will confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that you are the resurrected Savior, they will be saved. Not maybe, not if they're good enough, not if they have enough Bible verses memorized or if they've been to enough services. They will be saved. This is our resurrected Lord, who no one can say is not in heaven. So I thank you, Lord. And remind us, remind us of the past 125 years, Lord, but help us look to the future. For our future may be found, Lord, in great hardship, great struggle. But if we remain true to your commandments, if we love you and we love each other, we will never fail. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful testimony of this church. 
I, I have the most immense joy with no pride involved to be associated with John the Baptist Church and the saints that worship him. I thank you, Lord, for being able to be counted amongst them. It is a joy to my soul to raise my children here and see them grow, Lord, in this wonderful place. I thank you, Lord, and we're about to sing now. I ask you, Lord, to let us lift our voices high and worship you, loving each other and loving you the most. In your name we pray.